Are you ready for good talk? And of course you're ready. It's Friday. It's good talk. Chantelle Bear is in Montreal. Bruce Anderson is in Ottawa. I'm Peter Mansbridge in Toronto today. Uh, we got a number of major topics for discussion over this next hour. We're going to start, not surprisingly, on Ukraine. And here, you know, bear with me for a moment. Um, well, I give a tiny bit of background to what my what my question is. Um, if you look back in our history books, and I've been arguing all week to not forget our history, uh, when you go back to September of '39. And the Nazis invaded Poland on September 1st, 2nd. It was eight or nine days before Canada declared war through Parliament, had the vote, the whole bit, and declared war. Now, it was months before we actually did anything. Poland managed to survive basically on its own for six weeks, five or six weeks. Canada's involvement didn't really get going. There was a kind of a phony war after Poland fell for a number of months, and it was April of 1940 before the fighting really got started again and before Canada got involved. And under the government of Mackenzie King, things went back and forth over the next few years, sort of in, out. I mean, we were always in, but just how involved we were uh, was up, up to debate at times. Nevertheless, Canada had a sparkling record in the Second World War. But that's how it started, right? With a declaration of war. So now you look at the situation today and you look at what is Canada doing? Well, like its allies, it's voted against Russia at every turn of the UN. You know, sent the PM and cabinet ministers, a number of them overseas to visit allies, to make tough speeches, aggressive speeches about the actions of the Russians being involved, heavily involved in the biggest sanctions effort against another country, I think, in the history of the world. Uh, we're not actually firing weapons, but we are kind of arming Ukraine's army with uh, lethal weaponry to use against the Russians. And we are um, actively doing all kinds of other things to support Ukraine, aid convoys, etc., etc., and there may be more things coming. However, there's been no declaration of war. So here's the question. Given all the things we are doing, are we, as some people argue, and I've heard our friend Andrew Coyne argue this, that you can call it what you want, but we are at war now. We are already at war, given what we are doing. What's well, it didn't take a, a declaration of war to say that we were in the Cold War. And at this point, uh, this is more similar than the we are at war. War uh, involves sending your troops in combat. We did that at the, in the time of the Gulf War, uh, the first Gulf War under Brian Mulroney. It would be really strange for Canada to declare war on European soil when the uh, its allies in Europe are not actually formally declaring war uh, on Russia. And it would, uh, I don't think we are there yet. That is not to say we are not in a conflict uh, that could lead to all-out war. That's pretty obvious. But but I think. Um, Many of those who argue we are already at war are also, um, and they may be right, but they are also uh, of the. They also feel we should be engaging militarily over Ukraine uh, with Russia, which so far uh, is not the position of NATO. Another the two differences. We didn't put in place all those multilateral organizations after World War II to find ourselves accidentally uh, fighting wars uh, or, or getting into them because logic is where it gets you. So uh, we have and I think we will continue to act in tandem uh, with NATO uh, and with the United Nations on this. And the other is... Yes, in your history, Canada took only a few days to declare war in 1939. And mine, which was on the other side of the language divide, it was called the conscription crisis. Uh, so going to war involves 
things that many people who are alive today do not remember. Uh, and that was one of its features. So I, I find, you know, it's not an abstract concept to be going to war or to be sending soldiers to war. I don't disagree with anything you've said. However, I would also say at the same time that actions we are taking, Canada is taking, is resulting in people dying. And usually that's what happens in a war. People die. I mean, when we're, we're, we're sending lethal weaponry and we take seemingly great pride in using that terminology when we talk about what, how we're aiding the Ukrainians. Um, so there's that. But I, I hear everything else you're saying there. I mean, it's, you know, words matter. And, you know, maybe this is too much emphasis on just words, but we are in a situation unlike anything we've been in in our lives, in our lifetimes. And it's, uh, you know, it's, it's a very delicate situation and, and it could explode either way very quickly. Bruce? I, I tend to focus a little bit more on the question of what we're doing than what we call it. I think that as I see it right now, if I had to sum up what Canada's effort is, it has three elements. One is to help Ukrainians defend themselves. Two is to try different ways to de-escalate. Uh, the tensions rather than to inadvertently escalate those tensions. And the third is to isolate Putin and his regime. And the last one is kind of critical for me in thinking about whether there's some value in using a term like uh, or a phrase like declaration of war, because for me, as long as the conflict is one where we are very focused on Putin and his regime and his cronies rather than the country, Russia. Uh, I feel like that's a better way to approach this. I think that um, the idea that we would decide that we are at war with Russia um, carries a whole lot of other consequences, potentially, that we don't need, the world doesn't need, that may not be um, that may not have the effect that we would hope in terms of de-escalating tensions or in helping the Ukrainian people. So I, th I think there's a caution about, um, or I assume that there's a caution uh, among decision makers, not just in Canada, but in our allies uh, about finding that, um, you know, that awkward place. And I say it's awkward because I agree with everybody who says watching people die uh, from this Russian aggression is is horrible and there's a feeling of futility and there's a natural inclination to wish that we were doing more, could do more. And then people can come to the conclusions that, well, there are some things that we could do more, but why don't we cross those lines? And I think that's, um, that's a debate that's not going to go away. Uh, but I think for the moment now, even recognizing that it's a it's a devastating set of images that we have to watch the defend, um, help defend, um, try to de-escalate and to isolate on Putin and his cronies and his regime is probably the best available strategy. There are things we could do better uh, uh, and at which we keep failing. Uh, and this crisis, like the pandemic on some other front, has revealed them again. We are we are very, very good at the talking about welcoming refugees whenever something like this happens. And we are terrible at actually following up. Uh, just this morning, I was uh, listening to a, a parliamentary secretary of the government explain on Kazoo uh, Canada uh, why people have to go online to fill out whatever forms we put on them and send their biometrics uh, to Canada so that they can make their way here. Let's be serious here. Um, you are a refugee. You left with a suitcase and your kids in your hand, in your arms. You're supposed to find uh, a computer, an internet connection, the proper paperwork. The Afghan experience revealed much the same thing. They, 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 the actions don't follow words when it comes to Canada talking about taking in refugees. And it's not as if we are flooded. Most of the people who have fled Ukraine are hoping to go back home. They're not walking on those roads in the middle of a war thinking about Canada. So we, we can't even argue that we are so overwhelmed with demand that we can't deal with it. We are just not equipped 
or willing the political will to impose its will on the civil service to make things happen does not seem to be to the level of the talk that we hear. Uh, and that strikes me as totally abhorrent. Why? Because we managed to find the political will to make the civil service machine function during the pandemic for ourselves. Uh, but whenever it comes to refugees and immigration, it's always the same tune. Well, this and that. And people go back to sleep thinking we are the saviors of, the, of humanity. That's one. And the other is the defense spending issue. I was listening to my friend Andrew Coyne last night on the CBC talking about procurement difficulties. Uh, the fact that we never seem to be able to get our act together on defense you guys have been around for how long? How many times have you heard that? How many defense ministers, conservative and liberal, have come through over all that period? God, I remember Perrin Beattie writing uh, his white book, and it goes on and on and on. And here we are having exactly the same conversation. Does that make sense? It doesn't make sense. And so often what happens is the procurement debate is led by you know, those in the armed forces often who are fighting the last war and with the last war's equipment and not, you know, moving ahead into a new world. I mean, part of the new world for us, Canada, is going to be the Arctic. There's no question about it. And even the uh, the chief of staff of the Defense Forces was suggesting that yesterday. And we're, you know, we're totally ill-equipped uh, to be defending the Arctic. We have one patrol vessel or others on stream coming in. But we have one Arctic patrol vessel, and even it can't go year-round in the Arctic. Um, let me back up on two points. On, on refugees, and you kind of touched on this, uh, Chantel, but one of the, one of the difficulties in this ref refugee situation is, and if you watch these, these people who are fleeing Ukraine, going to Poland and other places, um, they consider themselves kind of interim refugees. You know, like they, they're convinced they're going to win this. I'm more and more convinced they're going to win it over time as well. Um, little does that matter. But the fact is they want to go home. They're not looking for a new country. They're looking for an interim country um, where they can, uh, can wait this out and then go back and be with their families and their husbands or fathers or what, whatever the case may be. Um, so there's that situation. The other thing that I noticed, and I, you know, in this kind of struggle for what else could we do how could we help this situation? The Russian strategy is pretty clear right now. They've been losing on the ground militarily, so what are they going to do? They're going to starve them out. They're going to encircle them and starve them out. Stuff's not getting in. So Anne Applebaum, who is you know, a great writer and an expert on this area of the world, was suggesting last night or this morning that, you know, think in terms of the airlift, like the Berlin airlift. This would actually get planes in the air, over Ukraine, but not in a cause to drop lethal weaponry on the Russians, but to bring in food and supplies to the Ukrainians, another way of, of supplying them. It was one of the most successful efforts of, of, of the post-Second World War immediacy where the people of Berlin were starving, and the Allies started an airlift. And, and got in through a narrow corridor, corridor to Berlin and, and, you know, and fed the hungry. Um, you know, so that's, you know, it, it, it's just another idea, but it's an idea that isn't, isn't shooting. You know, at, at some point, and this is where I agree with those about we're in a war, is at some point you got to call it what it is. And if you were involved in the in the, the the furthering of the conflict, you're at war. Seems clear to me. But then again, that's just me, Bruce. Um, uh, I, I think that uh, I don't disagree that we're involved in a conflict, and it, I guess it, I hadn't really thought about whether or not it matters that we call it a war. I do think that the. Um, that the notion of maintaining an aspect of this, which is diplomatic in nature, is important, but that's not a, an argument for um, lacking a determination and a kind of a vigor in our in our support for the military effort. Um, I, I'm also 
I agree with uh, with Chantal on the procurement point. It's been the longest, stupidest story in Canadian politics that we can't seem to figure out how to buy anything. Doesn't matter what government, doesn't matter what stripe. We just seem to be constantly falling down at doing that in any sort of sensible way. And I, um, I, I don't really understand the reasons why, but I'm, I'm hoping when we get some clear air here and somebody who's um, in that role as defense minister, who's had a pretty good run, run of uh, procurement decision-making uh, maybe maybe things will get better. Um, on the refugee question. We should say, by we, the way, on procurement, we're talking about billions and billions of dollars, right? Oh, this, yeah. This isn't, yeah. this isn't peanuts. This has always been kind of the leading budgetary item for governments going back decades. There's a lot and, of money involved. Uh, look, and I think there's always, uh, around every major procurement, the there's always a sense of greater political risk in making a decision than in not making a decision. And part of that is the, the, the sense that the, any result of any competition is always going to be heavily litigated by the losing side in those competitions. There's going to be a lot of uh, questions about whether or not the, uh, the right a number of dollars were committed in the right way with the right Canadian benefits. Um, there's never any sense of uh, this is going to be welcomed uh, by people. Now, this may change um, in the context that we find ourselves. But for many decades now, the idea that large volumes of tax dollars were being spent on military equipment wasn't something that most voters would look at and say, isn't that great? They would say, well, we have to do it, or um, it's too bad that we don't have that kind of money for other things. But really, th these are not kind of celebratory uh, political events. Um, but I, I'm also um, on the refugee question. I, look, I, I hadn't heard what Chantal was saying. I hadn't heard that from uh, people that I talk to, but I don't have any reason to question whether or not it's true. I just hadn't heard it. And I certainly agree that if if we are talking one way and not following through on it, then that's a problem and we should we should deal with it. And I think the um, I've been uh, horrified by watching how the EU uh, how UK is dealing with the refugee issue relative to how other uh, nearby states are and the sense that the UK is making it hard, um, much harder than it should be for people to to go there. And there are lots of people with families there. Um, but if if it's true that we're falling down on the job, I think that's that's an important thing that we should do better on. But I just wanted to raise another issue that that uh, is on my mind a little bit today as part of this conflict. I was looking at uh, Maggie Haberman's news feed this morning on Twitter, and she was repeating some stories coming out of Russia about banning Instagram and um, I guess uh, wanting to declare that Meta is an extreme extremist organization. And I feel like this is the this is the first kind of large scale situation where we're getting to see what happens when there can be rather than uh, a completely free Internet. Uh, an internet that exists where people can exchange information and knowledge about what's going on without uh, a lot of kind of editorial controls and that sort of thing. So on one hand, the, the, the virtue of a free internet coming face to face with the fact that it is ultimately a piece of technology that can be shut down by an authoritarian regime. Um, this is, you know, this is a, a really important thing for us to observe and try to figure out what we should do about it going forward. Because um, I do think that Putin has the ability right now to shut off his country, his people from information about what's happening. Um, we always knew that that was a little bit the case because of state owned and run media. But the idea that you would take those major social platforms that millions and millions of Russians use and be able to flip a switch and turn them off. Um, that's frightening in terms of what it means uh, in terms of the future. But it can't be a surprise given that China is already playing a, a bit a part in that movie. Uh, yeah. The Russians uh, are actually not inventing something here. Uh, they're stealing a page from uh, the way China operates when it comes to social media. 
Uh, whether we can do anything about it seems rather dubious to me. Uh, it does make me wonder if the, the companies um, that would prefer to operate globally and as a consequence would prefer a situation where there really aren't uh, state level regulations that intervene in how they operate, whether that time is, you know, whether that question is going to come more to the fore. Um, I, yeah, what, but it cuts both ways. I can't imagine that uh, the national governments in Canada, in France or elsewhere would uh, promote a hands-off to, to uh, the internet and social media. I, I can't see it. Would, would, would what? Sorry. Would just, would just, you know, this is beyond our control. We are, we no longer have tools to uh, have some control over these uh, operations. I don't believe that's going to happen. No, I don't think it is either. I'm just sort of looking at this, the idea that you would call this company an extremist organization because it suits your political purposes to do it is such an outrageous um extension of the uh, of the idea that you know government should control media on the other hand uh, if there are huge security issues that are now bound up in how information flows within our borders and around the world um, again without knowing what the solutions are it does seem to me that those didn't exist as huge security uh, issues in the past and they do increasingly can I um, just mention one thing out of out of Russia in the last well 24 hours, which is an interesting potential crack in the curtain, if you will, um, uh, of government control. The Russian state television last night, one of the lead commentators on Russian state television, um, did a commentary that was more than just a little bit negative about the current state of uh, affairs in the conflict with the Ukraine, and he was not siding with Putin. He was saying that, you know, the Basically, that the um, the situation is not only damaging Russia, it's potentially ruining Russia. And clearly, there is support for that view in Russia, as we've seen from the protests and the arrests that have taken place in a number of different Russian cities. It's a minority group, but still, it's there, and we've never seen this kind of thing before. And, you know, we're seeing... Uh, reports again today of of russians fleeing russia going into finland uh we haven't seen that before either so you know as 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 uh, as tough as the uh, mechanism is to control the media and to control the people and it is tough um there are cracks there and this is further emboldening those who are saying the sanctions are working the incredible resolve of the Ukrainian people is working, and uh, and Putin is in is in trouble. And uh, at a situation like that, you've got to keep pressing, and you've got to find new ways of pressing almost every day. Okay, if we've uh, if we finish that topic, we're we're anxious to get on to the next one. Everybody done Let's their do bit it. on this. Okay, going to take a quick break. When we come back, the conservative leadership race. It's getting more interesting by the minute. And welcome back. Peter Mansbridge in Toronto. Chantelle Hebert is in Montreal. Bruce Anderson is in Ottawa. You're listening to Good Talk on Sirius XM, Channel 167, Canada Talks, or on your favorite podcast platform. Segment 2. Today is the conservative leadership race. Gee, a week ago, there was really only one person in the race. Now there are four, maybe five. I mean, since who knows, since we started 25 minutes ago, some maybe somebody else has jumped in. But the, the big-name tickets are, are there. Pierre Polyev, who's in there from the get-go. And then last night, Jean Charest made it official and went in, first of all, on Twitter with... You know, one of the knocks on Jean Charest used to be He's kind of too laid back at times. Sometimes he's a little kind of lazy. Well, man, he seemed to have the laid back pills before he went on Twitter yesterday. It was like a sleep inducing uh, little commentary by him. But then last night in Calgary, he gave a speech to, uh, to those who were interested in, in following what he had to say. So uh, 
no more from me. Let's get it out of the gate. What's your sense of uh, Sheree's positioning of himself against the others, not just the other contestants, but some of the past ghosts of the Conservative Party, um, and and how things look for him at the beginning? Why, Chantel, why don't you uh, fire away here? For sure, he's uh, going to be playing the role of the underdog, which is a, a nice place to be if you have growth uh, coming your way, because everybody loves an underdog, and it's harder to run a frontrunner's campaign. Um, I'm not sure Pierre Poilievre's personality, his style as an attack dog, is well suited to the frontrunner status. Uh, because he he likes to be on the attack. It's harder if you're the if you're the front runner to uh, constantly wage the campaign of the underdog. I think Jean Charest has been by total coincidence and with no planning of his own has been fortunate in that the last topic we just talked about has changed the conversation on. Uh, energy development in Canada, pipelines, etc. He was always going to stress his pro-pipeline credentials. They are real. Uh, he worked for TransCanada uh, as a lobbyist for the defunct Energy East pipeline, so uh, he's not making them up. But he can now go harder on this uh, and pay less of a price probably in Quebec, among other places, uh, because the context of the conversation has changed. That is, uh, that is not me saying uh, suddenly Canada is going to want to be building a lot of pipelines. But for sure, even Justin Trudeau this week in Europe uh, was stressing how Canada would be looking into how it could get more of its fossil fuel resources to Europe. Uh, that's going to get mixed up in the transition, the European transition away from fossil fuels. But it has still changed the terms of that conversation to Charest's benefit. Uh, and he doesn't have to walk around saying, I don't believe in carbon pricing. Uh, I thought this line, and sometimes the, the dumbest lines are the best lines. Uh, we can walk and chew gum. I think a lot of Canadians would think that's a reasonable position. Uh, it's going to get harder as time goes on. The other thing I would note about the Charest candidacy is this is the very first time uh, since the Conservatives reunited that Quebec is going to be really engaged in the leadership battle. Frankly, uh, Belinda Stronach versus Stephen Harper and Tony Clement didn't really captivate anyone here. Uh, two out of three not being very fluent in French. Um, Andrew Scheer versus Maxime Bernier. Maxime Bernier was the unloved native son uh, in that battle. And most people were thinking, no kidding, uh, is, are, are the conservatives really going to give Maxime Bernier the leadership of their party? So uh, that was also that. And then um, the Aaron O'Toole and Peter McKay. Yeah, uh, a sideshow. But this one has people talking for the first time. Uh, about Charest, everyone has an opinion about Jean Charest in this province. Uh, those who tend to ail from the sovereignty side of the equation, which is almost half of Quebecers, do not have nice things to say most of the time about him because they consider that he came to kind of stave off the sovereignty movement when it had hoped to be on a roll. So don't expect to see polls that show 75% of Quebecers uh, suddenly are cheering Charest on. But remember one thing about the Quebec numbers and Jean Charest, when Justin Trudeau ran for the leadership of the federal liberals with a name like that and a baggage that it came with, not only with sovereignists, but with a lot of Francophone Quebecers, no one believed that Justin Trudeau could ever win Quebec in a federal election. And then he did three times in a row. Bruce, just before you get started on this, I, I, I have to say, you know, I've, I've known Chantal for I don't know, 30 years. And she just let pass through her lips one of the nicest things she, she's ever said about me. Although you know, I'm sure she wasn't thinking of me when she said it, but I, I take it as, as, as something. It did. She, and she said, some of the dumbest lines are the best lines. <laughs> and I'm going to embrace that line and cherish it and put it in my next book. Yeah, I never thought Maybe about it could be the title of your next book. Yeah, <laughs> I like it. Uh, look, I remember that, um, you know, as I was listening to Chantel, I was reminded of the fact that in her comment 
about him being the underdog, which I think is exactly right. I remember that in the leadership campaign that he ran and, and, and came second to Kim Campbell in, in the early 1990s. One of my daughters, uh, I was working uh, very closely with him in that campaign. And one of my daughters made a, a clay figurine of a turtle with a cape on it. And uh, I still have that somewhere. And I remember showing it to Jean. And the reason that she made it was we had been talking about his campaign as a tortoise versus a hare campaign because he started out as a 5% candidate in terms of his level of support in the party. And he finished around in, you know, the 40% number. And probably if he'd had a couple more weeks, he would have been able to surpass Kim Campbell and win that leadership. Um, and he likes that role. That is what he's naturally uh, suited for. I agree with Chantal about that. I also think that it's a reminder that the presumed front runner, if the race is long enough, becomes the focus of doubts. Um, and if somebody is not good at handling those doubts, uh, the doubts grow uh, and the momentum shifts. Now, I, like you, Peter, saw that video yesterday and I thought, it's surprising that with weeks of preparation time, that the first piece of uh, digital communication from Jean uh, was uh, as underwhelming as that. On the other hand, <laughs> you see laughing. There. Yes, <laughs> underwhelming is a kind word. It was it was a low energy thing, and it had that quality of somebody saying, "Someone just told me about this thing called the internet, and there's followers, <laughs> and I'm going to." I'm going to communicate with them this way. But I thought about it a little bit more. And, and obviously, I think his team is going to improve their digital and communication game. But then I read about his speech last night, and I was like reminded of the fact that he works best as a, a genial optimist who's thoughtful in what he says and who doesn't get flustered. Another reference to the you know, the shell, he has heard what Pierre Polyev and people like Jenny Byrne have been saying about him, and he is not troubled by it at all. I frankly think that he's done the calculation that um, it's a good idea for him if they're attacking him, and especially the nature of the attacks, because it gives him a platform to to respond and to show a different style. And so far, I think he's being a little bit the anti-Polyev. If, if people decide upon reflection in the conservative party that Polyev is too immature, too bombastic, too confrontational, too much style over substance, too polarizing. They'll look at Sheree and they'll see somebody who has a kind of a recipe. He's against BLC 21, which will rally some people. He's promising to kill Bill C 69, um, the Environmental uh, Review Act. I don't agree with that position, but I can understand that what he's doing is putting together a bit of a policy recipe that's going to sound like it's thoughtful and it's unifying within the conservative family. You're not hearing that from Pierre Polyev. You're hearing him pitch to one side of the conservative family exclusively. And so I, I think Sheree, notwithstanding that video and notwithstanding that people might say, well, that was kind of a low energy thing. Uh, he's off to a he's off to a, a relatively good start. His positioning isn't isn't the problem. It's, it's probably well suited to the race that he's trying to win. And starts um, are forgotten fairly quickly. Anyway, you know, I mean, uh, there's going to be lots unfold in the in the in the, uh, in the months ahead. I mean, I, listen, he, he showed obviously a, a lot of knowledge on a lot of the the issues that confront the party right now but he was taking i fault you know he's gonna have to sharpen his position on a few things because there was a lot of sort of on the one hand on the other hand you know and i kind of like this aspect of that but i you know have trouble with this part of it and you know he's gonna have to he's gonna have to sharp one assumes he'll have to sharpen his positions here's the one thing that i found i found intriguing and i uh, uh, about the way he handled it because it's not just polyev and and Jenny Byrne, who are, are going after uh, um, Charest, supposedly Stephen Harper is as well. And, you know, he he had an interesting, you know, he, he did the thing that everybody does about former prime ministers. Oh, he was a great prime minister. 
But then he basically was very dismissive of him. Sorry, he's the past, you know, that's the past, you know, we're, we're moving into the future, and which is interesting for a guy from the past, but nevertheless, uh, leaving that aside, um, he the way he handled the Harper stuff, I thought was interesting because I'm not sure anybody else could get away with that. Aaron O'Toole did sort of, I think, Chantel, but it, still, it's um, it's tricky when you're dealing with somebody who still has clout in the certain elements of the of the party. True, uh, Aaron O'Toole actually did one better. He invited Brian Mulroney to come out in support of his campaign at a rally and did not invite Stephen Harper or mm-hmm. did not show up with Stephen Harper anywhere. So, um, Or Stephen Harper didn't agree to come. Chantal, can I ask you a question? Because I, I want to know your opinion about this. Sorry, Peter, I know this is normally your role, but... <laughs> The I'm just a dumb guy. I, with your rule, dumb yes. <laughs> I was thinking about Charest's uh, policy recipe and how he was communicating it. And it reminded me so much of Mulroney on some level. It just had that kind of feel of this is a guy who grew up in that kind of uh, leadership context where he watched Mulroney be able to surf these divisions within the conservative party because they always were there, uh, but kind of rally with a sense of optimism and unity and to take different positions that would each individually maybe alienate some people and please some others, but kind of put them together in a way that made everybody feel that they were seeing a little bit of themselves in, in his leadership. Anyway, I was just really struck that, that he was more, Mulroney-like than Harper-like, and in in that sense, I don't know whether it'll work. Well, I think he's I, kind of holding that offer of a, of a, of a different kind of conservative party than the Harper version. I would say, and people who are supporting Jean Charlier will probably dislike this intensely, but I would say he is also more like Justin Trudeau and how Justin Trudeau became the contender who took down Stephen Harper from Thomas Mulcair, who was considered it. And what did he do it on? He did it on sunny ways, which is the kind of politician that Jean Charest is. Uh, You you do not, or I don't recall having heard Jean Charest say, um, the media is after me, or talk about the liberal media, or the et cetera, et cetera. I, I I took him to the press gallery dinner under his various incarnations as a, a, a someone who'd lost a seat in cabinet, someone who'd just gotten it back, someone who was the liberal leader in Quebec and someone who was the premier. And um, he just loves to talk to people. I've heard them say things that most people would normally you think what kind of a, you know, something bad is about to happen here, but say it in such a way that no one replied one night, one press gallery night, we were at, um, it was at the time of the Clarity Act. Jean Charest opposed the Clarity Act. Jean Chrétien was there. I was not a favorite of the prime minister of the day either. And late in the evening, very late in the evening, Jean Chrétien came up to greet the liberal leader in Quebec very hard to spend six hours in the same venue and they never cross paths. And um, so Chrétien talks to Charest as if I'm not there. And this goes on for about two minutes. And then Charest turns around, looks at Jean Chrétien and me and says, have you two been introduced? <laughs> uh, <laughs> it was, it's an interesting moment. It does live on. Now, having said all the things about um, Charest liking to be the underdog. I tried to think of the other leadership campaigns we've covered over the past one or two decades. And for sure, it doesn't look like any of the ones that uh, I covered on the right side of the spectrum. Uh, Stephen Harper, uh, to his credit, won on the first ballot is uh, two leadership campaigns. It feels more like uh, the Ray versus Michael Ignatieff battle uh, that came after Paul Martin left uh, the job of leader and prime minister. And why do I mention that? Because it is not always the case that a, a, a duel that pits two so-called strong contenders end up with someone else winning, and in this case, Stéphane Zion. But 
it does happen. Those are the dynamics that create an opening for someone like Patrick Brown. There is an assumption, and I, I totally subscribe to it, that uh, whatever happens on those ballots, if it comes to that, Patrick Brown will be going to Jean Charest to support him, but that the reverse will be true. Jean Charest would support Patrick Brown over Pierre Poilievre. But the, 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 the other assumption is that Charest will be the one receiving the support. I think in those dynamics, lots of things can happen. Uh, and Stéphane Zion's liberal victory is a sign of that. But if you want to go back, really go back. Joe Clark's victory uh, as, uh, at, at that conservative convention where Claude Wagner and, and Brian Mulroney were facing off uh, is another sign that when the party's establishment can't agree on who they really like, sometimes they end up with someone that they didn't believe would become the leader. So this yeah. battle has not played out and no one should treat Patrick Brown as just someone who's coming in there to recruit members for Jean Charlie. Oh. Yeah, I agree with that. I actually, sorry, Peter, go ahead. I was going to ask you, Chantal mentioned um, Thomas Mulcair, who, you know, a party jumper himself. I mean, he had been in the cabinet of Jean Charest in the Quebec liberal party. Um, then moved over to the NDP and was eventually their leader. But he told Evan Solomon the other day that he thought um, that Charest would not only beat Polyev, but would crush Polyev. Yes. What do you well, think I don't know analysis? about his math skills in these things, but I, I do think that the, the – I so I would be very, very hard-pressed to come up with the evidence that, that this is going to be a crushing of Polyev. Um, but I do think that, uh, you know, even a couple of weeks ago, I was kind of looking at some public opinion numbers because I think we maybe talked about them. And I thought this is going to be really hard for Sheree. But I'm feeling a little bit differently about them now, in part because I haven't really seen anything kind of clever or nuanced or really, in, you know, that interesting from the Polyev campaign. And it sort of feels like they may be just taking this for granted and they may have assumed from a distance without knowing Sheree that he has no skills and that there's not much energy in um, parts of Canada that they're not that familiar with. And by that, I don't just mean regional uh, differences, but where uh, red Tories secretly hang out. Um, they're not card carrying members, but they're, people who aren't happy with the liberals who are looking for something else uh, that they think better suits their blend of values. And I've heard from so many people in the last couple of weeks that haven't been involved in politics that are giving money to the Sheree campaign because they've been reached out to by people that they know who aren't necessarily saying they'll, they'll support the conservatives in the next party, but are really, quite interested in helping build an alternative. Um, and they see Sheree as somebody who might be um, the right leader of a party that could represent them. So the whole notion that, you know, the, the, what, would, what would liberals fear? I think uh, they would fear a Sheree-led uh, conservative party would be my view as of right now, more than a Polyev party. I think if Polyev wins, the Liberals have an opportunity to reach out to and try to scoop up a bunch of people who have flirted with the idea of going with the Conservatives, but would probably decide that Polyev isn't, you know, doesn't work for them. And maybe uh, they should think about supporting the Liberal Party with the caveat that uh, to succeed at a strategy like that, I don't think the Liberals can do it without a leadership change. I think that this dynamic that we're seeing now is only going to further impel the liberals towards the maybe it's time to to change up leaders may get a fresh uh, perspective a fresh kind of energy at the top um, we'll see how that goes but it, it does feel to me that sometimes this idea of change uh, is a bit contagious uh, in the political landscape and it, it might well be for the liberals too Okay, we'll take After our the, the the history of those, you know, let's change the prime minister. I believe Stephen Harper did better than anyone who could have replaced him before the 2015 election. I also think Jean Chrétien could have won another majority 
by the time he left uh, and would have done better than Paul Martin. And um, I think Brian Mulroney would have saved more of the furniture than Kim Campbell ever did. So the, that temptation to say a fresh face is going to help, sometimes uh, all that the fresh face does is lead the party to opposition in the place of the, the outgoing prime minister, uh, and usually with a weaker performance uh, than that prime minister might have, a long-standing disliked prime minister might have brought about. Okay, got to take a final break. Back with some final thoughts right after this. All right then, Chantal's in Montreal, Bruce in Ottawa. I'm in uh, Toronto on this day. You're listening to the final moments of Good Talk this Friday on the bridge. Uh, the one name that hasn't been mentioned, although you keep seeing it whenever the, the television networks or the newspapers or the online stories start saying, here's the current situation, the Tory leadership, conservative leadership race. The name is always kind of in there when Peter McKay hasn't said what he's doing. And keep in mind, Peter McKay is a former leader of the progressive conservative party, along with Stephen Harper formed the conservative alliance. Uh, back in the early 2000s and ran second in the last leadership race to Aaron O'Toole after much talk throughout the race. And he's another one of those examples of someone who was a front runner who failed at the end. Um, is there any any likelihood that he's going to enter this race? Does any anyone have a handle on the Peter McKay situation in the couple of minutes we have left here? I don't see a path to victory for him as opposed to last time. I think between Patrick Brown, who is uh, set to announce uh, on Sunday, and Jean Charest, uh, the support he needs is spoken for. I also believe he still carries a heavy campaign debt. Uh, and probably the best outcome for him uh, on the debt front would be uh, a Jean Charest victory and Jean Charest helping him fundraise because Charest is great at fundraising. Um, but there is also... The fact that um, Peter McKay wanted back in, he would have run a fair no tool that made him feel more welcome. Uh, and that didn't happen. They just didn't want to have anything to do with him. I think at this point, uh, he's probably in the best spot in the sense that he's not running. But if Pierre Poiliev does not win, I wouldn't be surprised to see Peter McKay be on uh, the conservative ticket in the next election uh, in a strong position, uh, bringing more of Atlantic Canada back to, to, to the Liberals and eventually becoming a senior cabinet minister in a conservative government. He wouldn't, I think, be doing that for Pierre Poiliev. But uh, I won't be surprised if Peter McKay comes out in support of one of the other two at some point in time. Bruce? Yeah, I think I agree with that. I think the uh, this is starting to look like it's going to be a fight between a conservative leadership campaign that wants to say, we don't want red Tories here, and a group of candidates who are saying, we want a bigger tent party. And it does seem to me that either Patrick Brown or Jean Charest will emerge as the leader, the standard bearer of that second version at this moment, it kind of feels like Sheree has the, uh, the you know, maybe the big political acumen and the fundraising advantages. And Patrick Brown probably has some organizational uh, advantages. But in the end, it does feel to me like Peter McKay, he's, if he was going to run to be that standard bearer, he's lost the opportunity now. I don't think that there's been enough conversation about why he would or why he would be an essential um person in that mix and it does seem to me that he's probably come to the conclusion that a charade led conservative party is an opportunity for him to get back into politics to make a contribution to feel good about his role and if i was charade i would definitely look at him i was surprised that aaron o'toole in touring atlantic canada avoided uh peter mckay's uh riding I mean, there were a lot of things in that campaign that went wrong, one of which was Aaron O'Toole not wanting to share a microphone with uh, key people in his party. But also the idea that you wouldn't, if you're trying to, you know, scrounge some seats together in Atlantic Canada, 
go in and um, harness the skills and the visibility of Peter McKay, that just seems like uh, malpractice uh, politically uh, in that situation. So I think that this idea of um, of the Polyev campaign being the red Tories, centrist Tories, uh, stay away. Um, I think it felt like the thing that would rally the base and maybe it still will work out, but I think they've set themselves up um, for a problem uh, because you've got these organizational forces that on the other side are making a case that does have some sensibility to it and will find a, a home in public opinion. The idea of a bigger tent conservative party that's less angry, that's less focused on uh, on fossil fuel, almost to the exclusion of everything else. And uh, uh, so I think that I also think that my experience in looking at referenda campaigns and petitions tells me that if you have um, two propositions and one starts with uh, a significant advantage over the other, then over time, what happens is that those tend to balance themselves out, that the nature of public opinion is that it wants to inquire about the alternative and media attention tends to be a little bit more 50-50 than 80-20. So I'd be watching for all of that to create a need on the part of the Polyev campaign to pivot away from this aggressive uh, posture because they may find that the numbers um, start to look more doubtful if they stay in that aggressive anti-red Tory mode. And they might offer some ground to the Liberals to start poaching, or at least trying to poach, if in fact they look yeah. like they're making real headway. Look, that's going to have to wrap it up for uh, for this day. We didn't get to the, all the topics that we wanted to today, but we put some uh, meat on the bone of two of the big ones that are, uh, that are facing politics in Canada and the situation in the world. And uh, we appreciate the fact that you uh, gave us a listen on that. Chantel in Montreal, thanks for your time, as always, and Bruce in Ottawa. Next week, thanks, on, the, next week on the bridge, all the, uh, uh, the normal things that we uh, love to do uh, on different days of the week, and we're looking for your, uh, for your ears on those topics and on those conversations that we'll have throughout next week on the bridge. So I'm Peter Mansbridge in Toronto on this day. Thanks for listening. Talk to you again on Monday.